You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccines. power and strength in women is the role this that maternal child health and nutrition... is what drives this disease and, t- and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast... You'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. I'm Sarah Allender, Executive Director and Senior Fellow at the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. In this episode of Take Us Directed, my colleague Haim Malka, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow with the CSIS Middle East Program, and I speak with Akihira Seta and Elizabeth Campbell. They represent the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, otherwise known as UNRWA. We discuss some of the challenges that UNRWA faces in providing health care to millions of Palestinian refugees. We also talk about political uncertainties in the Middle East and how reduced funding from the United States has affected UNRWA's operations. Welcome, Dr. Saito. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you for being here today. Um, Tell us a little bit about your current role, Dr. Saita, as the director of the health program and as WHO special representative at UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, uh, based in Amman, Jordan, which you've held since 2011. Yep. So thank you very much for inviting us. That I'm working with the director of health of UNRWA. UNRWA provides uh, several services to the 5.5 million Palestinian refugees in the five what we call fields of operations, West Bank, Gaza, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. And one of the key services we provide is primary health care services. We have 144 health centers, which provide a comprehensive primary health care with 3,500 staff, including 500 doctors. And I'm in charge of providing, I'm in charge of coordinating, setting policy, and supporting the provision of this primary health care for the 5.5 million refugees. And the, the reason I'm said I'm a WHO special representative is that the UNRWA and the WHO World Health Organization has a very strong institutional collaboration. And I'm a WHO staff, paid by WHO, but working in the UNRWA. Can you tell us a little bit about the mandate for UNRWA and how it came to be? Provide, uh, uh, provide and uh, protect and support the Palestinian refugees. UNRWA started operations since 1950. Since then, we provide primary care for the Palestinian refugees. The health, which I know the best, in early days of UNRWA, that we provide more life-saving uh, support, like nutrition and the communicable disease in the 1950s. 1960s, 70s, and the shift moves to the maternal child health. Else, which is to provide, make sure that the antenatal care, postnatal care goes well, and so the mother can uh, become pregnant easily and healthy and safely and deliver baby healthy. And the 90, until 1990s, that uh, shift moves to the non-communicable diseases, diabetes, hypertension, and now that's a major health issue we are providing now. Dr. Sun, can I ask you to what extent you're dealing with mental health issues as well? Because these are vulnerable populations sure. that are facing conflict in many different locations, yeah. in Syria, in Gaza, and in other areas. And mental health issues are increasingly challenging for populations, for young people. What kind of mental health 
uh, policies do you yeah, have? Thank you very much. It's a very good question. And the mentor is a big, extraordinary large burden for the Palestinian refugees and in terms of that uh, suffering. And then, that the, uh, as you rightly mentioned, there's no question or sorry, there's no need to explain why mental health is a major problem in Palestinian refugees. What do we do on rights like this? We have 144 health centers. We are expanding WHO Mental Health Global Action Plan, which is WHO global strategy to address mental health in the primary health care setting. Um, because that is very important for us because we are not a specialized institution for the mental health, but we are primary health care setting. So once we train the doctors and nurses, midwife and others, with how to deal with the mental health in the primary care setting, which we are doing now. And this, we started last two years. I'm very happy to tell you that we are now covering almost 90 health centers with the mental health. And our idea is by end of the, this year, if not early next year, we cover our entire health centers with a mental health gap of WHO. So what, whenever they come to a health center, of course, we provide the clinical services. But whenever we find the person needs some specific psychosocial support or the mental health support, then the, we, our staff will provide the consultations. And the, if needed, we provide the medical care for the depression. That's what we are doing this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the past, there's been a real taboo on discussing mental health issues yeah. in many of these societies. Are you seeing people more willing to come forward and ask for help on mental health issues and trauma? Yes. And it is it's fascinating, exciting, because that we had the same concern when we started mental health gap, WHO strategy health centers. We thought that people may not accept this. We thought people may not like this. Or we, we thought people may not like that you have a mental health issues. But on the contrary, when we started, they come and tell us, even now, that they ask us that we need support. And I think that is changing because one is that because size of the problem is very big. And secondly, they truly need some support. It's obviously they need some support. And so that there's no such, resi- of course, there is some resistance in the social cultural issues, but uh, it is gradually, if not rapidly, changing because of the needs. You've been really successful with facility birth rates and immunization rates, which is fairly mm-hmm. unique when we look at displaced populations. Usually we see a great impact on vaccine delivery and maternal and child care, health care services. What do you uh, kind of attribute those successes to? One is that our staff. I've been working in the global health last 20 to 30 years. My original background is tuberculosis and the AIDS and malaria. And since 2010, I moved to UNRWA. I can tell you that I have never seen such a hardworking group of people in the developing countries, public sector. It's really committed people. And then the one big reason is that all the 3,500 health staff I mentioned before, are Palestine refugees. I'm the one of the very few non-Palestine refugees. And so they are serving their own population, so they're very committed. I think that's part, first part. And secondly, the UNRWA historically gave extraordinary importance for the MCH, maternal child health care. And the one big reason is that it was a leading cause of illnesses and deaths in the past, but also that this is a social and social cultural unit that is very important for the Palestine refugees to get the, deliver the baby and give the generation to the next, and this is a very good one. And so based on this one, we provide a very comprehensive maternal child health care and they work with the host government to make sure that they have access to hospital services. In the past, in Gaza, for example, we have a maternity ward, but this was before I came. But now we have, no, we have only one hospital, which is in the West Bank. The rest, we do not have hospital. So we provide us, advise the mothers to go to the hospitals, in the contracted one, the host government one, so that they go to the hospitals. And so that's the reason that the you know, hospital-based delivery is almost 
100%. Same for the immunizations. And of course, Palestinian refugees give importance for the health of the babies and children. And we also give the importance. And we have a working with the host government very closely to provide the immunization coverage. So for example, uh, all the vaccinations we have are from the Ministry of Health of the host government. And so we work with the Ministry of Health together and they provide a very high immunization coverage. Yeah. Maybe Elizabeth, you could tell us a little bit about your role here in Washington as the in the liaison office and and how uh, you facilitate um, communications between UNRWA and Washington stakeholders. Sure. So, um, as Dr. Seta explained, the majority of our staff and operations are in the fields where uh, we work, and so we have three representative offices. One of which, of course, is here in Washington. And historically, the office was set up to liaise with um, the U.S. government, civil society, other relevant stakeholders. Uh, in large part because for 70 years, the United States was UNRWA's largest uh, financial supporter, providing about 30% of our, our budget. Um, that obviously has changed dramatically starting last year uh, when, for the first time, uh, the U.S. Uh, decided to no longer uh, fund the agency. But we still obviously continue to engage and believe it's very important uh, to do so to explain really in part uh, what's at stake, not just the health of an entire population, but really um, long-standing, highly effective, efficient uh, de- development infrastructure across the Middle East um, in terms of health, um, but also uh, education and the provision of basic humanitarian assistance. Can we talk a little bit more about that? I mean, it's not that the U.S. just cut some funding to UNRWA. Um, it seems like a much more concerted campaign to undermine the Palestinians more broadly. And um, I'll just quote here from the U.S. State Department statement announcing the end of U.S. assistance to UNRWA that says that the fundamental business model, and I'm quoting here, the fundamental business model and fiscal practices that have marked UNRWA for years tied to UNRWA's endlessly and exponentially expanding community of entitled beneficiaries is simply unsustainable and has been in crisis mode for many years. The United States will no longer commit further funding to this irredeemably flawed operation. End quote. Wow. That's very strong language, uh, especially after the U.S. has been such a major supporter of UNRWA for so long and has been an advocate of solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, establishing an independent Palestinian state. Uh, What do you think is behind this dramatic shift? Well, the very first thing I want to say is that um, we are a humanitarian organization. We are an independent organization. We do not work for or um, any... Uh, government, right? Our mandate derives from the General Assembly. And so when that statement uh, was released on August 31st of last year, it represented an extraordinary departure um, of from, of U.S., basic U.S. Uh, humanitarian policy where humanitarian assistance is and should be provided completely separate from politics. And what happened at that moment and in the months preceding that moment was probably um, one of the most politicized moments um, um, in in recent history of a humanitarian program. Um, And so I think we all deeply regret that, given the U.S. longstanding uh, tradition of supporting humanitarian uh, programming um, outside of politics. Um, But to speak a little bit directly to some of the uh, claims in that statement, Obviously, um, to, to lose the U.S. as a partner was, was certainly disappointing. 
Um, but a number of uh, myths have sort of arisen um, um, since that statement was made. And the, the first, let me just speak uh, very clearly to that. This idea that somehow UNRWA created its mandate or somehow is able to determine the fate of refugees is, is simply false. We implement what the majority of the UN member states have said is an important thing to do until there is a longstanding um, just um, resolution to the conflict. That is not something that UNRWA is able to determine. That is to the, we leave that to the parties, uh, to the conflict and other state actors um, to, to find a resolution. So we have no agency to determine an outcome and to suggest that somehow we are driving the conflict obviously is false and that's something that we strongly uh, reject. The second piece is that we, we have not and cannot uh, determine uh, who is defined as a Palestine refugee. That definition, again, is something that's determined in the General Assembly, and it's for member states um, to decide. They have decided what that definition is, and we are simply implementing um, you know, a series of programs and services to support that population, again, until there is a, a political decision. On the very specific question of descendants, this here also requires clarity. There is this myth that somehow UNRWA is unique because children of refugees acquire refugee status. That is simply untrue. Our practice is, is in line with global refugee practice, namely that by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees um, and the principles of family unity. All descendants of refugees everywhere in the globe receive status until there is a just and lasting solution to their state of exile. Uh, examples include uh, Somali refugees in Kenya, Afghan refugees in Pakistan, who sadly have lived in exile uh, for multiple generations. So in that regard, there is nothing unique about Palestine refugees and certainly nothing unique about the way in which UNRWA provides support um, for successive uh, generations. So you're right, it wasn't simply a reduction of funding, um, but it also came with, um, um, was shrouded in a series of, of myths, which are certainly harmful to the good work that we do. And if we zoom out a little bit more beyond just the cutting of aid to UNRWA, there's been a broader uh, cutting of aid to the Palestinians. There was the um, recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's undivided capital and moving of the embassy uh, the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. So there have been a series of steps by the administration over the last couple of years that have seemingly undermined the Palestinian position. And I'm just wondering from your perspective how you see that U.S. disengagement from the Palestinians affecting the work that you do. And then more broadly, the the perception among Palestinians and Palestinian youth in particular about the U.S. role in, in solving the conflict. So that's right. Um, the, the humanitarian assistance was cut across the board. So it certainly impacted UNRWA. We lost about $300 million last year, a total of what we would have anticipated around 360 uh, this year and moving forward. But also um, all humanitarian assistance for all parts of the UN system and international NGO community was cut. That means that there is only one civilian population in the world, Palestinians, that the United States has said is not entitled to U.S. humanitarian funding. So that's extraordinary. Um, and again, as I mentioned, uh, an extreme departure from um, historic U.S. Uh, humanitarian policy. 
Um, indeed, the U.S. pulled its funding from a hospital network um, and also, again, um, from NGOs who were doing food and water and other types of, of humanitarian um, programming and projects. So um, I, I think, you know, it's it's deeply uh, regrettable because, again, the U.S. is a leader in global humanitarian assistance, um, and it has politicized assistance to civilians, in essence saying that, you know, children are not entitled to food until the U.S., um, you know, get certain political concessions from political actors. So um, I think as humanitarian actors, we've never seen that level of politicization in, in recent history. I think that the the impact that it has had on the people on the ground, obviously, is that it's created extraordinary instability, uncertainty, and it has been very destabilizing. Um, if you just look, for example, at a very typical family in Gaza, what UNRWA means to them is a source of employment or income, access to school uh, for their children, access to food, and access to health care. So the idea that UNRWA would somehow uh, re reduce significantly or dissolve is indeed a life-threatening concept, not just to people in Gaza, but really for Palestinians throughout <clears throat> the region. And And... I mean, you're trying to be impartial and non-political in a highly politicized and charged environment. How do you navigate some of the politics with the other host governments, with Israel, with Jordan, with Hamas in Gaza? Can you tell us a little bit about how that's been changing and what the challenges are of, of navigating the politics with host countries? Well, you said it best. Um, we are um, a neutral, independent um, uh impartial humanitarian agency working in a hyper-politicized region. And we are challenged on a daily basis um, and work very hard on, regularly to, to remain neutral. Um, and the way that we, we do that is we rely on these humanitarian principles um, to, to basically test, to ensure that every action that we engage in, in fact, is independent from these political actors. And it's very difficult, particularly when you have very powerful actors um, putting placing UNRWA in, in a hyper-political context in exactly the, the realm where we do not belong and do not want to be because we are not a political actor. Um, so we engage with all of the hosts, um, but also all of the donors and all of the actors um, who support UNRWA in the same exact way, which is to constantly, on a daily basis, remind and maintain um, our independence and our neutrality. So, for example, um, if there are ever instances where we find that political actors are interfering in any way with our health clinics or our schools, we robustly um, condemn, we will confront them, take any additional actions, and even go public if necessary, depending on what the violation is. Um, but this is also a conversation that we we have um, with the donor countries who support us. If they ask us to take actions that are impartial or not in line with our neutrality, we also engage robustly with them to explain why we can or can't do something. Um, but sometimes we also um, look very closely at our programs to ensure that they best reflect um, our commitment uh, to neutrality. But it's very difficult, and it's a daily exercise. Yeah, can I just <laughs> add it? Say, like, uh, we are the humanitarian agency, and we are service provision agencies. Education is ex extraordinarily big. We have 700 schools or half million children from grade one to nine, which is a, what I understood in the U.S. sense. It is the third largest uh, education delivery uh, next to the New York and the Los Angeles, California. 
So it's quite a big one. And the health is also 144 health centers providing 5.5 million Palestinian refugees or around 9 to 10 million every year visits. And then we are doing this because we are needed to do this. And then that is a response to the health, uh, health uh, which I know the best. For example, in Gaza, without our health clinics, uh, many refugees have nowhere to go. And uh, in Lebanon, we are the only last resort for the many Palestinian refugees to get the primary health care services. As a whole, we have around uh, 10,000 deliveries every year. And we have a 280,000 diabetes hypertension patients everywhere in the five fields operation. We provide this because they, we are needed. And for the mental health, like what you mentioned, exactly mentioned, that we are deeply in need to provide the mental health and psychosocial support. And so, that yes, we, ha- we are in a providing this service in a totally politicized environment. But what we are going to do is save the life which they want us to save the life. So that we are going to do. So I think that's very important for us to remember that what we are doing is humanitarian support in a very politicized environment. But the life of the Palestinian refugees should not be politicized. If there's a life we can save, we should provide the services. Right. I mean, this, the issue has been politicized by Israel as well and its mm-hmm. relations with, with Gaza, with the Palestinian Authority. But it's also, the healthcare sector has also been highly politicized in the conflict between the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah and the Hamas government in Gaza. Gaza, and there have been instances of the PA uh, cutting the salaries for workers in Gaza, including in the healthcare sector. In the past, there were there were strikes in the Palestinian healthcare sector. Uh, there was a delay of shipment of medicines. It, to Gaza by the uh, Ramallah-based um, Ministry of Health. How do you navigate those, the politics and the conflict between Hamas and Gaza, where uh, you've been working for so long? Yeah, we've been, we have a very good communication with the Palestinian Authority. So I simply, the issue you raise, I simply wish and hope that they they can resolve quickly, because that will affect our services. I tell you, say for example, in Gaza. Well, why that the government services from both sections are not uh, working well, if not deteriorating? What happens to us? Many patients are coming to us because we have the essential medicines, we have the antibiotics, we have a medicine for the diabetes hypertension, which sometimes lacks in the, the other side. So I really hope that uh, they can solve the problem, but we are navigating very well with them to collaborate with this. And we have other very close collaboration with the World Health Organization, which has a more uh, convenient power for to coordinate with the both parties in the West Bank and Gaza. And we're also working very close with the West Bank, uh, sorry, World Health Organization to make sure that we can provide the services. Yeah. How are you adjusting to this big loss of U.S. support? What what impact are you seeing to your direct operations? How are you adjusting? I mean, so last year for us, it was a true uh, crisis and unclear whether we would um, be able to secure additional funding from other donors. And by the end of the year, we, we did succeed. We closed a $446 million funding gap. Um, and we did that by increased donations, largely from the European Union, EU member states, but also individual Gulf countries. We also internally cut almost $100 million um, to be able to do our part uh, in efficiency. So um, what our commissioner general has said uh, to our donors is he has said we, he will keep costs flat for 2019 if donors would be willing to do in 19 what they did last year. So we remain very hopeful that those commitments will be forthcoming. That said, um, this is all voluntary 
uh, contributions. It's a sovereign decision of any nation state to determine whether they want to provide money to us. Um, and beginning next month, or we'll really, I guess, starting tomorrow in June, um, we'll start to really suffer from a serious cash flow issue um, that will definitely adversely impact our ability to provide food assistance, uh, in particular in Gaza, where UNRWA is now feeding half the population or one million uh, individuals. So we are not out of the woods in terms of um, financial stability. And the loss of our historically largest donor certainly continues to impact and reverberate in everything that we do on a daily basis. Yeah. For health-wise, that the, as Elizabeth mentioned, that we survive. We have uh, all the health centers, none of them closed last year. They all continue to provide the services. And the statistics we are now getting are basically the same for the 2017 and 18. There's actually even the increase of number of patients because of the need. So I think we're very proud and happy that we managed to continue the services, which is very clear proof that you know, we are in need. We are in need. But of course, this funding cut up some impact of our provision of the services, not provision of the services, management services. Say like, and the one issue is that the medicines, we, we buy around uh, 15, 16 million dollars every year for the medicine, the entire medicine. And we buy that 12 months, which is the annual need, plus usually three months, which we call the buffer stock, because we do the international procurement. And the international procurement, anything could happen, the delays. So we have some extra always. Last year, we didn't have that extra because of the financial crisis. But we managed to buy 12 months. And this year also we buy uh, uh, 12 months only. And that is a very tight situation, but that's the way how we can provide the service, make sure that we respond to the needs of the patient uh, of Palestine refugees. Do you see any scenarios in the future where U.S. aid could be resumed in some form? I mean, there, there was this idea that the administration put forward that they would redistribute some of the aid that went to UNRWA to host countries to provide services. Is that a realistic proposal? Well, you know, something like that obviously would require the consent of Congress. And um, we've certainly seen the the House um, Appropriations Bill for 2020, and we don't see any elements that would reflect uh, endorsement of that kind of idea. So I think we need to be very careful about a lot of the uh, press reports or the rhetoric that we hear where, you know, the U.S. may take the lead in coming up with some type of um, proposal like that, because what we don't see is any evidence of, of support for those ideas. Um, as it stands, there is no alternative to UNRWA. Um, as Dr. Seta said, you know, if you if you took our health or if you took our education system and put it in the U.S., it would be the third largest system in the U.S. So the idea of somehow dissolving that absent an alternative, I mean, you're looking at, you know, again, the dissolution potentially of civilian secular infrastructure across the Middle East without any imminent um, alternative. I mean, what we know for sure, based on what the host governments tell us on a, a regular basis, is that no entity is prepared to absorb our schools and our, and our health clinics, let alone the humanitarian assistance program. Um, so it's it's a very dangerous moment to to be suggesting that somehow UNRWA can simply walk away and all of these institutions will be run by some other entity. Um, we are not aware of any government, any UN agency, or any international organization who um, even has who would be willing to do it, has the capacity to do it, um, or, or 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 otherwise would would be able to to absorb um, the scale and scope of of our activities. I'd like to ask you about Israel uh, for a minute. I mean, Israel and, and UNRWA have had a confrontational relationship over the years, but at the same time, there's this 
codependence in many ways. Israel controls access for many of your operations, but you're also providing services to hundreds of thousands of people um, that have an impact on Israel and Israel's stability. How have your relations and your interaction and your cooperation with Israel changed over the last few years? And what's the status of, of that interaction and cooperation at the moment? So what I can say, again, as a UN agency and as a humanitarian organization, we all operate with the consent of host authorities, and we don't have any operational authority absent that consent. So we continue to enjoy consent of the Israeli authorities to be present in the areas where we are operating, and that hasn't changed uh, in, in recent years. Um, and of course, from an operational perspective, and Dr. Seita can speak mm -hmm. to this, there's there's regular ongoing conversation um, with various uh, parts of, of the Israeli government to be able to to operate effectively. But, uh, it is, uh, in short, it is smooth, uh, because say, for example, we buy medicines internationally, and then the medicine is shipped either by air or the, by sea to the Israel port, and then they do come to Gaza or West Bank without any stoppage. It's very smooth. So in terms of the provision of our services, we have good collaboration with Israel. Yeah? I mean, we've seen Israel emerge as um, a promoter of U.S. aid to the Palestinian Authority security forces in the past and other uh, Palestinian institutions. What was their reaction to the, the cut in uh, what was the government's reaction to the uh, U.S. decision to cut funding for UNRWA? And how does, how does that affect Israel from your perspective? I mean, I think what we've seen publicly is is the prime minister supportive of the U.S. position, and that is our understanding um, of of it. But at the same time, um, of course, you know, as is the case with all governments, they're layered and complicated. And I think you have um, various views inside the government about the critical role that we play, not least in Gaza, where we are the second largest uh, entity employer after the Palestinian Authority. So I think uh, from the perspective of the Israeli security forces, um, they understand clearly the critical role that we play on a daily basis. Great. Well, I want to thank you both for joining us today. This is uh, for someone who's a relative newbie to the region. This has been really informative and appreciate your time. And thank you, Haim, for joining us as co-host. Thank you for thank having you very us. Much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Take as Directed, featuring Akihiro Seta and Elizabeth Campbell of UNRWA. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss our latest episodes. Please check out and subscribe to our new AIDS 2020 podcast. It dissects critical issues affecting the global HIV response and preparations for the 23rd International AIDS Conference scheduled for July 2020 in the Bay Area. For more info on our activities, please visit the CSIS Global Health Policy Center program page on CSIS.org.